Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. The Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah 43, 1 through 13. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north and to the south, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring your sons from afar and your daughters from the earth, end of the earth, everyone who is called by name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind and yet have eyes, who are deaf and yet have ears. All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. Whom among you can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. And you may know and believe me and understand that I am he, Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed. When there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? I need a light. (laughs) And the New Testament reading is from John 1, 1, John 6, 1 through 21. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up to, on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, 
There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come in, into the world. Perceiving then that there were about, they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not come, back, come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm Pastor Craig. If I haven't got to meet you yet, we are looking at a wonderful passage this morning, but I want to ask first, are you glad that we live in a democracy here? Is that a positive? We just had a, another round of midterm elections, and usually we get extra proud of that during that time, right? But have you ever thought about, is that a good thing or not? Maybe you're really into the crown, and you're like, man, maybe we should have a monarchy. Even though there's horribly unspeakable evils done in the name of the crown. Um, Apparently, Churchill did say democracy is the worst form of government except for all the rest. And I do think we have been trained to think that democracy is the best, even though we don't really live in a pure democracy. Uh, we've assumed that it is, and if you haven't had maybe a political philosophy class or something, you may not even realize there are arguments against it. But I want us to at least try to doubt what democracy does to us. What should we doubt at least what is popular? There's a, Anna dropped a great line on us at the newcomers lunch last Sunday. She said, we don't necessarily try to be culturally relevant, but we want to be culturally competent. And I was like, ooh, I'm going to use that. <laughs> Let's try to be culturally competent. What do you think living in a democracy does to your heart and mind. Well, there's some obvious ones. I think it leads us to idolize autonomy and choice, and I should be able to choose whatever I want, when I want it. Maybe it gives us a false sense of control or entitlement. 
maybe the most obvious one is we assume, not just in politics, but in the rest of our lives, that whatever is most popular is the best. And if you are in high school or middle school, I'm sorry to tell you, but that is not true. I know it may be hard for you to believe it in the moment right now, but it's actually not true. The, it's the most popular kids are not necessarily the best. This is easy to prove, I think. An easy, cheap example is McDonald's. McDonald's has sold billions. Remember they used to count on their sign? It used to say, like, we made it to three billion. Four, and then I think they just stopped counting. Billions and billions. Okay. Obviously, it is not the most healthy, best quality food, right? And yet it has sold billions. It's everywhere in the world. It's kind of easy to see that what is most popular is not always best. Well, I bring all this up because I wonder what does it mean for us when we are confronted with a person or with a truth that is better than what we would ever choose. That is true or the reality, whether or not we even want it. And yet it's even hard to discern whether we actually need it. What kind of response, how should it be different if the real king, the real president of the world, if you will, is not having to campaign, is not going to be voted out of office, is not worried about the next election, and yet, because of his love and grace, wants to make himself known to us. What would it mean to face that reality, that truth, and ask, yes, please tell us? Well, let's try to do that, see how God does reveal himself to us in our passage. But beforehand, let's pray. God, we do praise you that you are glorious and majestic. You have set aside this day that you may be worshipped and glorified. And we ask that you would show us your glory. You tell us that you show us your glory in Jesus. And we ask that you would open our hearts to receive you, who you truly are, not just who we want to make you out to be in our image. Lord, we pray your spirit to be mighty in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, who does he show himself to be? We're told in the very beginning of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He says, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Jesus is trying to make known to us who this God is. So let's see what he does in our passage today. The first one, when it comes to the feeding of the 5,000, 
is it maybe clear and simple, but surely a lot to grapple with. It's clear that he's trying to show us that he is the king who feeds. He is the one who nourishes us. As he tells us later in this chapter, he is the bread of life. Now, what do we see going on in this story? Well, we are told that there's a large crowd following him right away in verse 2 because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. We talked a lot about the signs last week, and again, we have another major sign where we want to think about it is important in and of itself, and yet also how is it pointing beyond itself. In and of itself, we see a lot of things happening in this description of the feeding of the 5,000, and there are a lot, a lot of echoes of Moses. There's a lot of echoes of Israel and Moses. He goes up on a mountain, then he apparently comes down to where there's a lot of grass, and then he goes back up to a mountain. John does not include frivolous details. So surely that's a veiled reference to Moses on the mountain, receiving the law, receiving the holiness of God. We are told, once again, it is the Passover of the Jews. It was Passover just a few chapters ago, and already it's Passover again, so we've gone past a year. And we'll come back to why that is significant, but at least we want to remember Passover is the holiday of all holidays, the feasts of all feasts for the Jews when they remember who they are. They are the people chosen and redeemed by God, brought out of slavery into Egypt. So it is the Passover. And then another explicit Old Testament reference when they say at the end, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They're talking about this promise that Moses gave them back in Deuteronomy 18. He gives this promise and he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. So there's going to be a prophet like Moses. From your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And the Lord God said, I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. They were hoping and waiting for centuries for this prophet to come. And he does this incredible Sign where he takes these five barley loaves. Barley was uh, bread, really, that the the poor were more easily able to get because it was cheaper. Five barley loaves and feeds 5,000 men. We only count the men, and so there were probably maybe double more people there in total than 5,000. He feeds them and then tells tells them to gather up the baskets that none may be lost. And we're told that he gathers how many baskets? Twelve. Matthew, in Matthew 16, we're pointed also to the number of baskets, which seems really strange, but when he fed the 4,000 in a Gentile region, he then gathered up seven baskets. Seven usually pointing to the global, the complete, all of creation. And then here we're told 12, just as in the other stories of feeding the 5,000, surely to point to this 
is the new and greater Moses gathering the new and greater Israel. So he has performed this sign and they are appropriately amazed. Right? They are appropriately amazed and they want to make him king. But before we get to that point, I want us to just sit with this fact of Jesus being the bread of life. Hallelujah. The one who nourishes you has come. He is the one, the Lord, who supplies our needs. And he has come. There's probably a reference here to Psalm 23. Did you notice out of the blue he said, oh, and by the way, there's a lot of grass there. Psalm 23, by the way, not 22. Psalm 23, what does it say? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. We have the walking on the water next. The Lord, who is the shepherd of Psalm 23, has finally come in Jesus. So we want to ask, is that where we find our nourishment? Do you feast on Jesus? What does this mean for how we feast? Surely it has something to do with our own bread. You want to put this scene together, right? Jesus taking the bread, giving thanks. He later will tell us to eat his flesh and drink his blood in this very chapter. Surely this is pointing us to this meal. The meal that defines a Christian. What does this meal say? It says we are the ones who receive life from Jesus' death. The meal that Hal Lynn's going to get to take for the first time today. We're so excited for you. That this is who you are. There was a uh, uh, famous book written in the last century, one of the more famous books on, on the sacraments and sacramental theology by this Orthodox priest named Alexander Schmemann called the life of the, For the Life of the World, which is a quote from later in John 6. And he starts off this dense, amazing book by saying something quite profound. And he says, you are what you eat. You are what you eat. What could he possibly mean by that? Well, he goes on to talk about this, among other things. But also how food is almost a placeholder or a symbol for our relationship to the world. How much do we take comfort in food may speak to how much we take comfort in the world. So we should ask that question. For me, if I am very utilitarian when it comes to meals. Uh, my poor kids were so thankful I got remarried because when they were with me, the meals were very, very lackluster. We're having pizza again today, guys. I think that reveals something about me, though, that 
I can be judgmental and cynical about ordinary things, prideful even. I don't have to care about this stuff. I'm not going to plan it out. I'm better than that. Something may be strange there. I don't know. Maybe that's you. What are your meals like? Are your meals so luxurious and gluttonous that you have forgotten the whole point of your bread is to point to the real bread of life? You have become so comfortable in this world that you have forgotten that you are meant to feast on the bread of life. Do you stress eat? Do you eat a lot of comfort food? I know that when I start eating comfort food, it's really just because I am less and less content in Jesus. It's like I, I, I need it. I'm not bringing my stress to him. So I need something else to fix that. If you've ever tried to literally fast from food, you'll quickly see how dependent and fickle we are. I heard this uh, interesting interview with uh, the actor who played Bubbles in The Wire. If anyone's seen The Wire, he plays this really uh, amazing character who's just struggling. He's on the street. He's struggling with drug addiction uh, throughout the series. Uh, the, The actor's name is Andre Royo. And he talked about when he was getting ready to play this character who's always just in deep, deep need for finding more heroin. He said that he went home and he cut out everything that he always did because he wanted to get a sense of what it felt like to be fiending for an addiction. And so he cut out, I guess he drank a lot of like soda, so he cut all that out. He would always come home and start watching TV, so he cut that out. And there were a few other just mundane examples and he cut it out and he started to feel that. Like, I really need these things. I can't believe that. We are addicted to a lot of things, aren't we? I think if you ask yourself, obviously this is bigger than food. We are addicted to a lot of things. What do you need to cut out in your life? We talked even this morning in the sermon discussion about how are there ways that we can deprive ourselves of the comforts of the world because we need to get hungry. That's what we need. We need to get hungry. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who what? Hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the poor in spirit because they know, they know they are needy. We need to find ways to Remind ourselves, show ourselves that. What are some ways that you can do that? What are some ways where you can frame your eating and drinking, your whatever it is, as they are supposed to be, which is supposed to be a pointer to the real feast that we have? The Belgic Confession does a really interesting, just simple comparison. It says, God gave us regular food, common food, to eat with our mouths. And then he also gave us this meal that nourishes and maintains the spiritual life of believers when eaten. 
This is a confession from the 1500s. And then it goes on to say, Just as truly as we take and hold the sacraments in our hands and eat and drink it in our mouths, by which our life is then sustained, so truly we receive into our souls for our spiritual life, the true body and the true blood of Christ. We receive these by faith, which is the hand and mouth of our souls. So, the bread of life, the Lord who feeds, the King who feeds has come. The one who provides our ultimate provision has come. You don't have to look for comfort anywhere else. Hallelujah. Second, he is also a king who surprises. King who surprises. This is a veiled reference in this passage, and it's going to come up a lot more later in the gospel, where they try to make him king, we are told, and he withdraws to the mountain. Now, we don't want to fault these, uh, this crowd too much, because this is the Passover, and the Passover, not unlike our elections, is the time where Jews would get extra nationalistic. They would think, when the king's going to come, surely he's going to come at Passover. When Jerusalem is filled to the brims, when he can get a big crowd on his side, and then he can overtake Rome. The long wait of Israel is finally over. The Messiah finally has come. He's clearly the prophet who was to come. Now we've got him. And then he withdraws, hides himself. Imagine, man, it would be nice to have a politician who did that once in a while, wouldn't it? I don't want the power, actually. Of course, that is who he is. He is the king who will end up dying, contrary to all of our expectations. So do you have room still for God to surprise you? Or has he become so mundane, so much in a box, that you already know what he's going to do? I think of it as kind of a a tension. Because God is clearly reliable. We are told over and over he is a rock. We can come to him and absolutely know who he is because he has shown us, he has revealed it to us. But that doesn't mean we can put him in our box. That doesn't mean we can limit him. Only God can do that. We need to remember, right, that God is not a magical genie or an ATM that we go and get out what we want of him. It is a unique sort of relationship. So if he, if he provides our nourishment, then we also need to let him define our nourishment. This is how you are going to be filled and nourished. This is what it means to feast on me. So we need to still come with those empty hands. So we have a king who feeds and a king who surprises, and then we get to the walking on the water where it is very clear that he is not just a king, but the king of kings. He is God himself. We come to the walking on the water, another very famous 
story. You can actually go over to the Yale Art Gallery and see the earliest known artistic depiction of it. Uh, we didn't even know the Christians made art until this little cave in modern-day Syria was discovered, and they are there drawing on the side of the cave Jesus walking on water. I think it's like late 2nd century. It is an intense storm at night when presumably some of them were fishermen, so they know what they're doing, and they're going across the sea, and they're about three or four miles off, and we are told they are frightened. We're not told that they are frightened by the storm, necessarily, in this passage. They clearly are frightened by the storm in other Gospels. But in this passage, it seems like we are meant to see that they are frightened when they see Jesus. Have you ever been really scared? Really frightened, like out of your wits? I just watched uh, Jordan Peele's movie, Us, if, you, if anybody saw it. It came out a few years ago. About this family who, it turns out, everyone has twins that were hidden underground in the shadows, forgotten about, and all those twins now are coming back to exact revenge, get what is theirs, and so this family is under attack, and it's pretty scary. <laughs> and it just reminded me of what happens when you are frightened. It's disorienting. It's a loss of all the things you thought you could trust. You start relying on things and then realize, oh, I can't rely on those. Clearing out these false hopes and false trusts, it changes you, right? The people in the movie are, they're like forced to defend themselves so drastically to murder someone and then they're like afraid of who they've become. It seems like God often has to reveal to us our false hopes and trust, like he has to clear them out of the way. Show us that they are not to be relied on so that he can enter our life. When Jesus comes on walking on the water, he says what? It is I, do not be afraid. We need to realize what is happening here. This is not just Jesus showing off another trick out of his bag. Hey guys, what else do you think I can do? Let me show you. I can walk on water. Isn't this cool? That's not it. He is showing that he is the God of the Old Testament who alone commands the seas. Who alone commands the waters. How do I get that? One, it is in his response. He is quoting the divine name. If you remember back in Exodus 3 when Moses is talking to God in the burning bush, Moses says, if I go and lead Israel out, who should I tell them is leading me? It is I am who I am. That's the one who's leading you. And then in the passage that we heard read, in Isaiah 43, this same divine name is picked up. Sometimes it gets lost in the English, but 
The part we heard read, I, I am the Lord. And besides me, is there, there is no other. It's almost like a double entendre. Like he's saying, yes, I am the Lord. But he's saying, I am is the Lord. There is no one else. I am God. Henceforth I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. Later on in the chapter he says, I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. We're going to see Jesus using this grand I am throughout the Gospel of John. This is the first sort of absolute use of it, where he doesn't say, I am something else, I am the bread of life. In a few chapters, he's going to say, before Abraham was, I am, which sounds strange in English, and that's because he's saying, before Abraham was, I am the Lord. This is who I am. Do not be afraid. God or one of God's angels can say that. Nobody else. And I want to remind us that the sea is not the way we may go out to the sound and enjoy a nice time at the beach. To the Bible, to the Israelites, the sea is the place of fright and terror, of the beast who is uncontrollable. I think, I forgot to check this, so you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think in the end of Revelation... When the new heavens, new earth comes, it says there is no sea, which may be kind of disappointing. Like, oh, I want to be able to go out on the ocean. That's not the point. The point is God has conquered the uncontrollable evil, the Leviathan, if you will. He is the one. So maybe our perception of the sea is really more like after a hurricane. That's what the sea is. The sea is evil, and yet alone, God alone can control it. Most obvious example being the Exodus where God parts the sea and Israel walks through it. In Job 9, we are told when he is describing who God is, he is the one who removes mountains and they know it not when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth, commands the sun, and then he tells us who has trampled the waves of the sea. It is a picture of God's power and lordship, even over creation. There's another example, Psalm 114. Listen to this depiction because it depicts the earth and the sea. It personifies them. And then it says, tremble. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, the sea looked and fled. The mountains skipped like rams. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, the Jordan River, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams. O hills, like lambs, tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord who turns the rock into a pool of water. God alone has the power to make us, even creation, tremble. And we are shown here that is who Jesus is.
What would that mean for you? To take his words, it is I, do not be afraid. Fear not, I will be with you through the waters, through the storm. What would it mean for you to believe that? That he is the one, it's almost like Jesus doesn't even have to part the seas in this case. He just walks on top of it. How much greater is he than any storm in your life? How much less ought we to fear anything else? What is there left to fear if we realize that Jesus is the Lord, the one who does not need any election to reassert his power? To imagine, we can say with the psalmist, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? What do you fear, brothers and sisters? There are a lot of things we struggle with fearing, isn't there? Other people's approval or disapproval. The loss of a dream. The loss of our finances. The loss of some kind of political hope. Why do we fear? How should you face your fear? You can name it in the presence of the Lord and compare it to Jesus. And how ridiculous does it then look? How much smaller does it become? Not because we're dismissing the fear, but because God in Jesus Christ is that much greater. This is the one we are told who has come in Jesus. The one who feeds you. Who feeds you with the bread and the wine that gives you new life. The one who we can never limit or put in a box. The one who commands the storms, the seas in your life. That is the one who has come in Jesus. And all we have to do is receive him. To follow after him, because why would we follow after anything else? Why would we follow after anything else that is going to be foolish, that is going to be trembling in the presence of the Lord? We get to come to Jesus the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we don't have to tremble anymore. He says, do not fear. It is I, the one who will die in your place that you may have new life. Don't live according to the old one anymore. You don't have to. You have been set free. Amen? Let's pray. Father, set us free. Set us free from our fears, the way that we are so comfortable in this world. Father, give us the faith to trust the words that we hear on Jesus' lips. You and you alone are what we need. May we feast upon you.
Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.